She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and if you're tuning in for the very first time, I've got a little bit of context for you. We are almost to the middle of the miniseries, They Called Them Crazy. Each week, we're looking into the life and legacy of a woman whom society, at some point, dubbed crazy. Why were they called crazy? Were they actually certifiably insane by today's standards, or were there other reasons that they were shunned in their lifetimes? And that is what we're here to find out together. Last week, we dug into the legacy of Hildegard von Bingen, one of the most famous female-identifying polymaths that ever lived, and the only one, really, from 1100 AD. Uh, Hildegard wrote what would become some of the only existing medical texts from that time, um, some of the most profound theological writings, and a boatload of liturgical music, including the very first musical. And she was the first female composer in written history, and one of the only composers of the time as well, because most liturgical music of the time was written by Anonymous. Now, listeners who heard all of that last week are probably in great suspense because... I left you hanging, and I only told you part of her story. But I intentionally left out arguably the most important part of her story, and certainly the part of her story that makes her part of this miniseries about women who were called crazy. So, Hildegard. Let's talk about her early life really quick, because I skipped over that last week, so I'd have enough time to list all of her accomplishments. And, by the way, I only listed just a few of those accomplishments just now, so if you missed last week's episode, I do recommend hitting pause right now and rolling back to last week before listening to the rest of this episode, because all of that info makes this part two even more interesting. Okay, onward. Hildegard was born in 1098 AD in Burmersheim, which was a fairly bustling for the time city on the Rhine, that's a river, uh, in Germany. It's like the center west Germany. And on today's roads, that's like an hour's drive from Frankfurt, if you know where Frankfurt is. Her parents were Mechtilde of Merxheim-Nachet and Hildebert of Burmersheim. They were a pretty well-off family. Most of my research sources even refer to them as nobles, so probably better than well-off, probably fairly rich. And supposedly, Hildegard was the 10th, that's right, 10th child. And it was customary at the time to give your 10th child back to God as a kind of tithe. And for you sickos listening, that does not mean kill them. It means enclose them into the monastery. That's right, Hildegard was a nun, for those of you who didn't listen last week. Hildegard was a famous nun. So when Hildegard is approximately eight years old, her parents drop her off at the monastery and in Dizibodenburg. Ugh, it's a mouthful every time. So according to Google Maps, that's about 50 kilometers away from Burmersham, away from home. And when she arrived, 
She was, and I'm going to quote a source here, quote, placed in the room, also called a cell or a tomb, with a ceremony, including funeral honors. This was a lifelong dedication of seclusion from the world, the ceremony being symbolic of one dying to the world, or rather the world dying to oneself so that person may live a life of purity removed from all sin of the world, end quote. That is pretty intense, if you ask me. So as usual, with my research, there's a little conflict between some of the sources. Some say she was six years old when they brought her. Some say she was 14. Some say that she was a, quote, troublesome child, and that's why her parents brought her to the monastery rather than the tithing. And our past broad history research, that's kind of a recurring theme, so it seems kind of plausible. And some of the sources also say that she experienced visions which were troublesome to her parents, and so they wanted her locked away. Visions. Hmm? That's right. Visions. That, my listeners, is the big secret I didn't talk about last week. It is not a secret to those of you who already knew who Hildegard was before this. It's pretty much the most talked about thing about her in all the sources if you look her up. And certainly, it is the reason that she is most often described as being a, quote, visionary. In today's world, visionary is defined as a person thinking about or planning the future with imagination or wisdom. That's the first definition that shows up if you Google definition of visionary. So someone who thinks big, right? But in medieval times when Hildegard lived, it meant someone who had literal visions. Now, Hildegard referred to these visions as the umbra viventis lucis, which means the reflection of the living light. In one of her letters, which she wrote at the ripe old age of 77, I should add, she describes this living light. Quote, From my early childhood, before my bones, nerves, and veins were fully strengthened, I have always seen this vision in my soul, even to the present time when I am more than 70 years old. In this vision, my soul, as God would have it, rises up high into the vault of heaven and into the changing sky and spreads itself out among different peoples, although they are far away from me in distant lands and places. And because I see them this way in my soul, I observe them in accord with the shifting of clouds and other created things. I do not hear them with my outward ears, nor do I perceive them by the thoughts of my own heart or by any combination of my five senses, but in my soul alone, while my outward eyes are open. So I have never fallen prey to ecstasy in the visions, but I see them wide awake, day and night, and I am constantly fettered by sickness, and often in the grip of pain so intense that it threatens to kill me. But God has sustained me until now. The light which I see thus is not spatial, but it is far, far brighter than a cloud which carries the sun. I can measure neither height nor length nor breadth in it, and I call it the reflection of the living light. As the sun, the moon, and stars appear in water, so writings, sermons, virtues, and certain human actions take form for me and gleam. 
uh, end quote. Another time, she also described it thus, quote, Heaven was opened and a fiery light of exceeding brilliance came and permeated my whole brain and inflamed my whole heart and my whole breast, end quote. By her own writings, Hildegard apparently first started seeing these lights at the age of three. And by five years old, she started to understand that they were visions. And she also recognized it was a gift, but that she definitely could not explain it to other people. So she kept these visions a really big secret to everyone until when she arrived at the monastery and she's enclosed with another young woman named Jutta of Sponheim. Because guess what? Jutta had visions too. They were visionaries together. So even though life in the monastery was really rough, they're in their tiny little cells and they're eating like one meal a day and they were suffering pretty greatly under these strict Benedictine policies. They could at least share these vision experiences with each other. And one of the sources said that Jutta also told the monk Vollmer about their visions. But don't worry, everybody. Vollmer would prove to be a true friend, and he ended up being Hildegard's secretary for life. Actually, for life, he was the one who would write down much of Hildegard's dictation in all of her greatest works. Basically, their whole lives until he died, and then she had to have someone else take over. So Hildegard continued having visions, and she continued keeping them a secret until in 1141 at which point she's 42 years old, she receives another massive vision in which God instructed her to, quote, write down that which you see and hear. Now, Hildegard still, she feared the repercussions of what doing so would do or what it could do, so she refused to write them down. But then she became very, very sick. And uh, in the first theological text she would end up writing, titled Scivias, Hildegard described this whole situation. She said, quote, But I, though I saw and heard these things, refused to write for a long time through doubt and bad opinion and the diversity of human words, not with the stubbornness, but in exercise of humility, until, laid low by the scourge of God, I fell upon a bed of sickness. Then, compelled at last by many illnesses and by the witness of a certain noble maiden of good conduct and of that man whom I had secretly sought and found, as mentioned above, I set my hand to the writing. While I was doing it, I sensed, as I mentioned before, the deep profundity of scriptural exposition and, raising myself from illness by the strength I received, I brought this work to a close." though just barely in ten years. And I spoke and wrote these things not by the invention of my heart or that of any other person, but as by the secret mysteries of God I have heard and received them in the heavenly places. And again I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Cry out, therefore, and write thus. End quote. It's worth mentioning once more if you listened last week that Scivias is a heavily theological work. She covers things in the book like how the universe is shaped 
and the original creation story, how redemption works. She also has the first mention of purgatory or one of the earliest mentions of purgatory, stuff like that, right? And at this point, it's around 1150 AD. People did not just write religious documents like this. The whole Christian world at this time takes itself incredibly seriously. So Hildegard was born uh, in 1098, and that is in the middle of the First Crusade. And the Second Crusade begins right around this time when Hildegard starts writing Scivius. By the way, for those of you unfamiliar with the Crusades, since Indiana Jones didn't really give us the backstory, the Crusades are... In a tiny nutshell, the Roman Christians and the whole Christian world generally trying to take back land that had been, quote, taken by the Muslims. And I am, I'm not even going to go into more detail than that, because you know it's going to be a huge rant and it's going to take up the rest of the episode. Suffice it to say, people at this time were religious AF, and some chick, a female, who was writing down stuff that she claimed to be from the mouth of God, could be seen by the religious leaders as hearsay, right? So after these visions and the terrible illness that followed her not writing it down, Hildegard is like, okay, I don't know. I think I got to try something. So she asks her abbot, the head monk of the monastery, for permission to write, which he grants her. And she begins journaling her visions. But... In general, it's not widely known outside the monastery walls. And Hildegard and the monastery are not widely publicizing it. Also, this monastery is like tucked away into the rural woods of central Germany. So there's not a lot of foot traffic. And that probably helps to kind of keep things under wrap. But eventually, word of her endeavor makes it to the synod in Trier. And the Pope, Eugenius... Eugenius III, I think, hears about Hildegard's writings and his interest is piqued. And he sends a delegation to the monastery to check out what exactly is going on. And the guys he sends are able to procure a copy of Scivius in Progress. It wasn't finished yet because it took 10 years to write. And they bring it back to the Pope to read. And to the relief of Hildegard and her abbot, and I'm sure the entire population of the monastery, the Pope blesses it. And commands her to continue writing. Woo-hoo! Oh my god, I can't even imagine how nervous they probably were, because if he had not blessed it, that would have been a disaster. Now, all three of her theological texts, there were two more after Scivius, that was just the first one. Um, these theological texts are all basically writing down the visions that she had which were from God. Scivius alone comprises 26 of these visions. And not just text. The original copies of Scivius were illuminated manuscripts, which means they include pictures. Not photos, of course. It's the medieval times. But artistic drawings or renderings. We don't really know if Hildegard painted them herself, but she definitely at least oversaw the creation and some of these pictures are trippy my dudes uh, I have a few of them up on the website I definitely have the one of her that's like a portrait and there's these little things that look like little fingers touching her forehead and those are her visions 
Um, I have that picture up on the website. For new listeners, broadsyoushouldknow.com. Check it out. You can see the picture of the fingers, the wavy fingers. Um, and if you just do a general Google right now for Hildegard and Visions, you'll, you're going to see these pictures. You're going to see these illustrations. Now, okay, as you all know by now, I, Sarah Gorski, am not a doctor, even though I know my mom wishes I was, but as I'm doing all this research and I'm learning all that her books are about, and then I see these drawings and I read the descriptions and her description of the reflection of the living light, my WebMD spidey sense starts to tingle. And I wonder, I wonder, were they actually visions from God? Or could they have been maybe some kind of neurological disorder? And in this case, my WebMD skills may not be wrong because other researchers who are actually qualified doctors have offered up a few potential explanations. For instance, one of them, a neurologist named Oliver Sacks, believes Hildegard may have suffered from severe migraines or temporal lobe epilepsy. Now, another widely circulated theory, and one that's highly lauded by many feminists, <coughs> myself included, <coughs> is that Hildegard's visions were merely a tool for her to craft the world more to her liking and earn some damn respect in a world that didn't respect women at all. You might remember from last week that once Hildegard was able to move her nuns over to Rupertsburg, she loosened up all of these rules that they had under the Benedictine monastery, who were very strict. For instance, she let some of her 50 nuns dress in white and keep their hair long instead of cutting it short. And when critics would complain, Hildegard would reply that God himself had directed her to do it. And nobody, nobody was going to challenge God himself. It was God's will. God wanted her to do it. In um, one of the fabulous articles I found called Visions of Power and Influence, Hildegard of Bingen and the Politics of Mysticism, author Lisa Elena Talley says, quote, Hildegard used her visionary experiences to enhance and promote her status as a religious leader and to combat the medieval view of women as simply flawed men, while maintaining a position of respect and admiration throughout her life. Hildegard utilizes the Vox Dei, or voice of God, in her visions to reinforce her own desires and machinations. The illness which accompanied Hildegard's visions, as well as the way she models her revelations on the style of biblical prophets, such as Ezekiel and Jeremiah, aided in her validation as a powerful religious figure. Therefore, Hildegard was able to undermine the staunch patriarchy and misogyny of the church to become a woman of great power and influence by using the Vox Dei, end quote. Um, one of Hildegard's biographers, Barbara Newman, says that Hildegard used, quote, visionary style and prophetic authority as modes of empowerment for a woman who would otherwise have no license to speak let alone write or preach about the things of God, end quote. And let's take a second now to recall, like once Hildegard had reached the level of spiritual advisor to royalty and the Pope himself, they were writing her letters that she was replying to. She literally 
started touring around and preaching and she was brave enough to criticize quote a spineless church and evil state tussled over prestige and power end quote she stood up against these massive organizations now of course you're probably wondering am i going to devolve this conversation into this argument between science and religion and theology there's all these little little theories in the mix right um as Lisa Elena Talley says, quote, whether or not Hildegard actually had her visions is not relevant. Neither historian nor theologian can actually prove that. Rather, her life and letters reveal an almost coincidental pattern of events, which hint that Hildegard gained attention and respect as a result of what her contemporaries believed were Hildegard's divinely inspired visions, end quote. Y'all, I don't know what else to say. I am absolutely amazed at all Hildegard accomplished in her life. It's truly astonishing. Her body of work, um, it's and most of it is the only existing work of its kind coming out of that time period and a long time after. And I, you know, what's the point of having a podcast if you can't put in your two cents, right? I personally, I don't think I believe in visions. I think there's a lot of explanation, potential explanations, for what could cause someone to experience flashes of wavy lights and excruciating pain, right? Our brains are amazing, water-filled electrical storms. And then also, who knows what kind of funky mushrooms were growing in the ancient forests of Germany, right? Um, I don't, however personally think that Hildegard was faking it. I believe that she believed in her experiences, that she really thought that she was having visions, at least at the beginning, you know, who knows, I guess, as as things evolved. But for whatever it's worth, apparently, on September 17th, 1179, when Hildegard died, her sister nuns claimed that they saw two streams of light appear in the skies and cross over the room where she was dying. To learn more about Hildegard von Bingen, see some cool medieval art and art that she made of herself, you can head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, you can click on over to the About page and read more about me. I've got a bio, photos, links to all my other cool stuff is there, and my social stuff. And also, you should follow Broads You Should Know on social. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad for future episodes, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, please help spread the word about us. Share your favorite episode with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those things really help new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed Hildegard's story, then I recommend you check out some of our previous broads in this series, the prolific broads Christine de Pizan and Chiquinha Gonzago, as well as our other sainted broads, Olga of Kiev and Mother Teresa. See you next week for another visionary broad you should know.